Hello, Peter Pearls listeners, and welcome to January 22nd's Monday re-release. This re-release is brought to you by the Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group and is a points of discussion podcast on EM, Rhyme, SJS, TEN, the alphabet soup of blistering severe cutaneous adverse reactions. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Pedra's Points of Discussion podcast. I am Jen Dawson, Pedra's Associate Director of Educational Programs, and I am back in Season 2 with our Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group. This session is going to focus on EM, Rhyme, SJS, and TEN, the alphabet soup of severe blistering cutaneous adverse reactions. Make sure you've subscribed to the Pedra Pearls podcast channel to listen to all of our programs. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pedra Research. And if you are interested in learning more about our Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group, head on over to www.pedaresearch.org. Now, a couple of disclaimers before we begin. It's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program presenters. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA or its presenters and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. I would like to take a moment to introduce your program presenters. The moderator for today's program is Dr. Michelle Ramin. Dr. Ramin is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Calgary. She is also a clinician investigator at Alberta Children's Hospital. Dr. Ramin co-chaired PEDRA's 10th annual conference back in November of 2022 and has worked on countless research projects within PEDRA and is currently serving on PEDRA's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. Lastly, she is the chair of PEDRA's Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group. Joining Dr. Ramin is Dr. Yvonne Chu, Professor of Dermatology as well as Vice Chair and Medical Director of Pediatric Dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She also has co-chaired past PEDRA meetings and has been a key member of PEDRA for many years. At last and certainly not least is Dr. Aaron Mathis. Dr. Mathis is a professor of dermatology at the University of California, San Francisco. She's been a longtime PEDRA member and has previously co-chaired PEDRA's Best Practices Task Force. At this time, I would like to announce that Dr. Yvonne Chu has no relevant disclosures to this discussion. However, she has been funded by PEDRA for a study on RHYME. Additionally, Dr. Mathis has no relevant disclosures to this discussion. However, she is the author and reviewer for Up to Date, and she has previously done some consulting two years ago, but that is not relevant to this topic. Lastly, Dr. Michelle Ramin has no relevant disclosures to this discussion. She has previously been funded by Pedro Grants Programs. She also consulted two years ago for dermatology products, but not specifically related to Rhyme. These include AbbVie, Boehringer Ingelheim, Eli Lilly, Leo Pharma, Pfizer, and Sanofi. In episode one, Dr. Ramin takes us through a brief introduction on blistering severe cutaneous adverse reactions and has a conversation with Dr. Mathis about the importance of distinguishing between Rhyme and SJS. Over to you, Dr. Ramin. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us today to talk about 
erythema multiforme, reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption, Stephen-Johnson syndrome, and toxic epidermal necrolysis, the alphabet soup of severe blistering cutaneous reactions. You might be asking yourselves right now, what are severe blistering cutaneous reactions or blistering scars? So really this spans the spectrum of the conditions that were previously described in the 1992 classification of blistering scars described by Bastuji Garay. Um, and these conditions were divided into erythema multiforme, Stephen-Johnson syndrome, and toxic epidermal necrolysis. Erythema multiforme typically has six typical target lesions on the skin with relatively limited mucosal involvement and tends to have an acral distribution in association with HSV infection. Erythema multiforme is distinct or felt to be distinct from Stephen-Johnson syndrome and TEN or SGS and TEN, which exists on a spectrum and can be triggered by other infections such as mycoplasma or medications. And these reactions tend to have very severe mucositis of multiple mucous membranes, but with, with significant skin involvement with blisters that expands the range from almost no skin involvement up to uh, full, full skin involvement with detached or detachable skin. And patients who have the very severe form, and most cases are drug-induced, uh, are also very systemically unwell. What we proposed with our with a recent publication in the British Journal of Dermatology that was uh, published last year was to create pediatric-specific definitions that more or less maintained erythema multiforme as that mild form of popular target lesions with minimal mucosal involvement, maintained the TEN end of the spectrum with drug-induced epidermal necrolysis, but really any drug-induced case should fall into that grouping regardless of the skin involvement, but those patients, again, have multiple mucous membranes involved, are systemically unwell, and have a trigger medication that can be identified. But we also created in the, in the middle room for a condition called reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption that can be triggered by mycoplasma pneumonia or other respiratory infections and causes a disproportionate amount of mucositis to the limited skin lesions that develop that these patients develop and the patients typically are although they can be somewhat sick at the time they do really well and they don't require a lot of intervention um, it's my pleasure to be here today speaking with dr aaron mathis from ucsf about the controversy surrounding rhyme stephen johnson syndrome and ten so we thought we'd start off with a clinical scenario who's presenting a pediatric patient presenting with their first episode of severe mucositis, maybe with a few skin lesions, and this patient may or may not have had a upper respiratory tract prodrome with exposure to medications for said prodrome. Erin, what would you do in this situation, and what do you call these patients when they turn up in your hospital in your emergency department? Yeah, thanks, Michelle. I think I would probably use the word reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption, um, which is we'll call RIME. I think this is the best term to use in a scenario like this, um, especially if it's a younger child or a teenager um, with mucositis and sparse skin lesions and some sort of infectious prodrome or some sort of uh, you know, respiratory symptoms and maybe a fever. But before deciding on that term, I would do a really thorough drug history and make sure that there isn't 
a plausible medication trigger. Um, and then also I would do a really thorough history looking for infectious exposures and possible infectious causes. But I would say the majority of cases that I have seen in younger children or young adolescents fit into the rhyme category because there's no plausible medication trigger. Um, and they often have a history of a mycoplasma pneumonia infection um, or other infection that uh, we ultimately uncover. I like the term rhyme better than MERM, which is mycoplasma induced rash and mucositis because MERM confines the trigger to just one infection, whereas rhyme is much broader. And we know that there are lots of different infections that can cause um, a clinical scenario like this. So mycoplasma is, I think, still the most common, um, but there are many reports now of COVID um, causing a clinical scenario like this, in addition to some chlamydia species um, and viral infections with HSV as well. I think it's important to distinguish this clinical scenario from the more common adult presentation, um, which is more likely to be drug triggered. And so that's why I like the word rhyme, um, because in a pediatric population, it's far more likely to be infectious than drug, although you certainly don't want to miss a drug. And so you do need to thoroughly take a good drug history. Thanks so much. I, I feel like I already have so many questions just listening to um, just listening to your response to that uh, case system. I think the first thing I, that I wanted to highlight for listeners is that Dr. Mathis is one of the one of the authors from the original MERM publications. Am I right? In 2015, yeah. yeah. So is one of the people who coined the original term for this, like now what we consider to be part of that umbrella term of rhyme. The MERM cases are probably one part of that. Uh, the other the other thing that I was curious about as you were talking about the history that you take from these patients is what, what kind of symptoms are you looking for? Like, what is the evidence that you're looking for to make yourself confident that this is rhyme and not something that's medication triggered? Because a lot of these patients have those upper respiratory or maybe pneumonia light symptoms and end up getting antibiotics. So how do we know when it's an infection and when it's medication related? Yeah, great question. I think most of the time you want to think about whether the drug has is likely to be a cause. Um, and so that involves both the drug itself and then also the timing. And usually the medications that are erroneously blamed for this um, are given too soon, too close to the actual onset of the blistering and the mucositis. Um, and so usually in Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is triggered by medications or in a toxic epidermal necrolysis or DEN, there's a longer delay between medication and um, clinical symptoms. There is a prodrome associated with Rhyme. Um, and so you could have just malaise and fever as part of the prodrome. Um, there are also cases that have a very clear atypical pneumonia. And so for that, you're looking for fever, cough, chest x-ray findings, um, and or auscultatory findings. And then occasionally you, well, actually not occasionally, hopefully you are able to find a laboratory that confirms um, a laboratory abnormality that confirms the infection. And so we do mycoplasma PCR um, in addition to viral PCRs to try to find that. I'm trying to think if there's any other, I think it's chest X-ray clinical findings and laboratory findings that confirm the infection. Yeah. Um, and 
And as we've expanded from MERM to RIME, so a broader uh, infectious category, then it gets a little bit, you have more options for how to prove that it's caused by an infection. And so by, and by viral PCR, you mean like the res, like a respiratory viral PCR rather than HSV necessarily or herpes viruses? Exactly, yeah. So I would do, usually there, most hospitals have a respiratory panel um, that includes things like influenza, rhinovirus, paraflu, RSV. Um, you do want to be very careful because those do vary from hospital to hospital. And so you want to make sure that if mycoplasma pneumonia isn't on that panel, that you order it separately. Yeah, that's a great point, actually, the variability between hospitals, because some people might associate, might assume that it's being run and if, and that if it's not there, it's negative, but in fact, it may not have been run. So that's a really good um, high yield point. And I, I don't know if you want to touch on management at all of these patients. What would you do in that setting of a first episode patient who, um, who presents with this prodrome? Do you, do you kind of have a sense of how their case is going to progress? Do you like to observe them in the hospital? Do you discharge them home? What's your, what's your preferred management for these patients? Yeah, I usually admit on a first episode um, because I think you don't know exactly how bad it's going to get um, because certainly there are some patients who um, progress actually pretty substantially in the first couple of days, almost no matter what you do. But certainly if at the outset, outset the patient isn't tolerating um, oral liquids, um, then they need to be admitted. Or if they're having such severe pain that they can't be managed at home, then they need to be admitted. Um, so I usually admit and observe at the minimum. There's a controversy about exactly how to treat them and whether to use um, antimicrobials and then whether or not to use anti-inflammatory medicines. I would say for the antimicrobials, if there is a history of something that seems like an atypical pneumonia or cough, fever, things like that, I will treat with azithromycin at the beginning. If the PCR then comes back negative, we sometimes stop treatment if it's only been a couple days. And then if there's a history of HSV, I will sometimes treat with acyclovir as well, or if I think there are any specific clinical findings for HSV. And then I would say we used to use a lot of prednisone um, and use relatively early short courses of prednisone for these patients because we thought it helped with the mucositis. And I do believe it does. We usually use one to two milligrams per kilogram per day and then do it for about five days. We try not to do extended courses because those have been associated with worse outcomes. And I would say now there's a lot of interest in cyclosporin and also a Tanercept as effective treatments um, when given early on to prevent progression and um, worsening of the mucositis. So I have used both of those as well. So to, I guess, to kind of, just to summarize, if you had an admitted patient with, uh, with clear um, pneumonia symptoms, you would give them an antimicrobial plus minus the anti-inflammatory treatment, depending kind of on the severity. Yeah. Um, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. yeah Are there any other correct. tips or tricks that you have for those admitted patients? Like, is there anything that you use, for example, topically or strategies that you use for these patients? Yeah. So I think the, the hardest pieces are the mouth care and the nutrition, um, especially for the very severe cases. If they can't start taking PO um, nutrition pretty soon, within a, usually a day or two, then I push strongly for an NG tube uh, because otherwise they can't heal. 
Um, and so, of course, nobody wants an NG tube, but I do think that it helps with healing and ultimately helps with recovery. So I think that nutrition is super important. And then for mouth care, I'm curious to hear uh, what others do, but we sometimes do dexamethasone, swish and spit. If we think somebody can spit, uh, there's magic mouthwash with uh, Benadryl and um, some sort of a coating agent. Um, all of that is just supportive care. You want to make sure that the lips are really gooped up with um, some sort of emollient, um, just like plain petrolatum. And then in very severe cases, you want to make sure that the corners of the mouth don't become scarred. Um, and so you can use bolsters in the corner of the mouth. You don't want the lips to get too crusty. Um, it's better if they stay moist. Those are all really great uh, practical, practical tips. I'm sure everyone else is taking notes too. I totally agree about the mouthwashes. It's so challenging because they're in so much pain. These patients are usually in so much pain that it's really difficult to get them to, to use the mouthwash. Even if you give them the logic about coating their mucosa and maybe making it more comfortable afterwards, it can be really a challenge. So pain control is the other, I guess, big element with these patients while they're admitted. I, I was curious as you were talking about this. So we're talking about the first episode patient. Um, in, your pa in your experience with patients who have recurrences, you do you find that more often the first episode is more severe because that's been reported in the literature and that or, and or that often the first episode is mycoplasma triggered but then they might have other triggers afterwards is that does that kind of go along with your experience or do you have a different experience yeah that that has been my experience i do have a handful of cases of a handful of patients who have had recurrences and the reported rates of recurrence are actually quite high in the literature and our paper that we published uh, several years ago now, I, there was, I think, 9% recurrence. Um, well, actually, the what I should say is that the range goes from about 9% recurrence to almost up to 35, 38% in some of the more recent reports. So I always counsel people about recurrence um, because I want them to get in quickly um, when they have, if they have a next episode. I do find that recurrences are milder than the first episode. Um, they're usually shorter, have a shorter hospital stay um, and less morbidity. I don't think we know why, um, but my um, experience is that I, especially if I treat them quickly, um, which usually you can do, so you can start anti-inflammatory treatment more quickly. And I think that helps. I also have had cases where um, they all, all of the episodes were triggered by mycoplasma. And then I've had cases where the episodes were triggered by different things um, or actually more commonly where we couldn't actually figure out what caused the repeat episode to happen. When it comes to those patients that have recurrent disease, recurrent episodes, do you try to see them every time and do you repeat the investigations every time or do you tend to give them a treatment? Once you know what's going on, do you give them a treatment plan that they could use at the first sign? What's, what's your approach with recurrences? And at what point does it become more clear that these are recurrences rather than some other problem? So I, I ask the patients to call me or message me immediately when they think they're having a recurrence and to send photos. Um, I can sometimes get them in for an appointment. And then I, I do if I can, especially with the first recurrence, because I think it's nice to confirm what's going on and to evaluate them in person. For people who have multiple recurrences, which is again, a really small group, but does happen, I do give them a treatment plan um, and I give them a prescription for prednisone, usually um, to about one meg per keg to take for five days. 
to try to abort the episode if they can. I also have a patient who has a clear HSV trigger. Um, and so I give him uh, high dose acyclovir as well um, with his prednisone. So he takes both to try to prevent the episode. I have tried to repeat blood tests and I have varying degrees of success based on usually logistics um, and when people can get in and when they can get to the lab and whether they're in college or whatever. Is there anything, um, if you could, in your ideal world, if you could have blood work on these patients, what would be the things, the blood work or I guess any testing on these patients that are recurrent, what, what would be the things that you would really want to know about? I think that, well, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this as well, but I think I would be most interested to know their infectious status. I really, I would like to know mm-hmm. what the trigger is so that perhaps I could address the trigger in order to prevent future episodes. So I would like things like a respiratory panel or a swab, and then also a mycoplasma um, serologies. So IgG and IgM, and some people use IgA, which you can get, but it takes a long time to result. What I had previously learned as the gold standard for mycoplasma infection is a fourfold tighter increase in IgG following in the weeks following the episode. Um, and so that would be great if you could document that, but getting somebody to go to the lab twice is sometimes quite challenging. Um, the PCR right now is also very good and helpful, but it is very sensitive and you can have mm-hmm. mycoplasma in the nasopharynx for months after an infection um, when it's not truly pathogenic. Right. I think there's good literature about that, that many people are asymptomatic carriers of mycoplasma. And so having that, I think that combination, I totally agree with you, the combination of the serology to show that there's a response to an infection, like presumably an active infection, and that the pathogen is there is really important with the PCR. I don't know, is there anything else that you wanted to add, I guess, about RIME? I think it's important to distinguish RIME from SJS for all of the general providers and general dermatologists out there. This is a very frightening condition for many when they are first evaluated in an emergency room or in urgent care or in a general practitioner's office. And I think it's important for everyone out there to know that there is a distinct subset of disease that has a good prognosis that is more commonly seen in a younger population and more commonly has an infectious trigger. And I think that is distinguishes it from Stevens-Johnson, which more likely has a drug trigger more common in adult populations and can progress and have poor outcomes. And so you don't want people to be overly concerned or to tell patients that they have a you know, a 30% mortality risk when that just isn't true for RIME. So um, even when we looked back historically at every case that had been reported in the literature of MERM, um, going back to like the 1940s, the mortality rate was 3%, and that was all pre-modern medical care. Um, so this is a disease that has a good prognosis, it has a distinct population, and it has a distinct trigger. And so I think it's important to distinguish it from SJS. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing your wisdom about RIME and um, I think also for giving us the context and the practical pearls on management of these patients. And I, and I especially thank you for making a very strong case for why this should become part of every uh, pediatric providers and potentially general dermatologists 
vocabulary. Thanks so much, Dr. Mathis. You're quite welcome. This is episode two, a discussion on Stephen Johnson syndrome and how it fits into this larger category of blistering severe cutaneous adverse reactions. It's my pleasure now to speak with Dr. Yvonne Chu from the Medical College of Wisconsin about the case for keeping Stephen Johnson syndrome. So Yvonne, presented with that same patient that we discussed in episode one, patient presenting to the emergency department, pediatric patient with the first episode of severe mucositis with some blistering skin lesions, possibly an upper respiratory tract prodrome and certain treatments, possibly some NSAIDs, maybe some antibiotics. What do do you call this patient and and what direction do you take their management? Um, Thanks for asking that question, Michelle. So I would argue that um, this patient should be diagnosed with Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Um, This terminology has been around for many years and it's terminology that the um, medical community is familiar with. And so when diagnosing a child with Stevens-Johnson syndrome, I do believe that um, the ER physicians, the hospitalists, um, primary care providers will understand that this is a serious illness that requires um, intensive cares and admission for certain um, cares. I think RIME um, is, or MERM is a more new, uh, newly introduced term and perhaps it's just adding confusion to what's out there in the literature and clouding um, the picture for specialties who are less familiar um, than us with some of the nuances of these individual cases. I think you can argue that there is perhaps a spectrum of disease with a lot of clinical um, phenotypic overlap between Rhyme, between Stevens-Johnson, TEN, and even including erythema multiforme in there. Right? These disorders are characterized by uh, some degree of um, blistering, whether that blistering occurs solely in mucosal surfaces, such as uh, rhyme tends to do, um, or predominance of mucosal surfaces, I should say, um, or whether or not there is skin involvement um, in the cases of things like TEN or EM. And the degree of mucosal involvement is highly variable, but even within one disorder, it can um, be quite uh, variable, such as, you know, having erythema multiforme minor versus major. Um, And then same with the cutaneous involvement. Um, I think you can have isolated targetoid skin lesions and something like erythema multiforme. Um, And you can um, sometimes have more extensive coalescing areas of skin necrosis with things like Stevens-Johnson and TEN. But then with patients that present with an infectious trigger without a a medication as a possible culprit, these kids that uh, have been called RIME or MERM in the literature oftentimes can have variable degrees of skin involvement. Sometimes they see few targets or a few atypical targets. Sometimes they have giant coalescing uh, sheets of necrosis, just like you would expect in TEN. So I am not sure that there's great value in giving them a different diagnosis or a different name. I would also argue that you're probably not treating them the same way. Um, Recent paper that was published um, suggested that a Tanercept could be used in the treatment for Rhyme. And just like Dr. Mathis mentioned in the first episode, a Tanercept is also commonly used for things like Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So if it looks the same, it's treated the same, the sequelae of scarring are the same, why are we giving this a different name? And um, I think that that just adds 
more um, confusion to the literature that we're splitting rather than lumping. I like your conviction, Dr. Chu. I'm very impressed. I'm impressed by your enthusiasm as we delve deeply into these diseases. I um, should perhaps I want- add the caveat here that <laughs> th- this is not my personal opinion, um, that I am arguing a point that that I, I can see the validity of, right? Even if yes. it's not something I personally believe, there are people that I highly respect and who trained me, who taught me this um, way of thinking. I think, I, I mean, I think there's so much value in having, um, having opposing opinions. And that's the, this is really the value of the debate, which you are making more impactful and more colorful and lively and valuable today. I think we can make better choices when we, when we see both sides. I wanted to just go a little bit more, dive a little bit more into the EM, EM major, EM minor, EM major uh, question with you. So there, I know in the literature, there are some studies that suggest that EM minor without a lot of mucosal involvement, those really well patients with mostly target lesions, that that's more strongly linked to HSV and that possibly EM major where there's more mucositis, patients are more unwell, um, and where th- that those may be more linked to mycoplasma. Is that is that your personal experience? Have you seen different things? Have you seen this? Have you seen HSV span the spectrum of EM minor, major, or go, even go into SJS? Or what's your um, feeling on that? Yes, I I think this is a very controversial topic, and we probably need to have some better uh, consensus case definitions for some of these disorders um, before we can fully understand uh, what is going on. Um, But like Dr. Mathis mentioned, I have certainly had patients who have recurrent mucositis that is triggered by HSV. And um, in the one patient that I have cared for for a long um, time with this disorder, she was predominantly mucosal um, erosions until several years into her disease course when she presented with some April targets. I think it's hard to say that she is a case of recurrent rhyme triggered by HSV. I think the better term in this scenario would be erythema multiforme major recurrent triggered by HSV. So I think there is a lot of, um, it's a spectrum of disease. And, I, I, and I'm not sure that we are doing the community a service by introducing another diagnosis and another name in there. And I think it just adds to the confusion of what already exists. I would also argue, um, Dr. Ramin, and I'm not sure if this is what you were um, kind of getting at, that, you know, this same trigger can trigger a variety of clinical phenotypes. Um, So just as you can have HSV that can trigger, you know, acral targetoid uh, lesions without any mucosal involvement. HSV has also been known to trigger predominantly mucosal disease with no or minimal skin involvement. Um, And whether you label one rhyme or label one um, EM, that seems to be splitting hairs. And then you also sometimes um, seem to have patients who have um, no known trigger, so no viral symptoms um, beyond a short prodrome, um, no drug culprits, and you know, what do we call those patients? Can you really call it reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption when they didn't have an infection preceding? I think that those patients are more accurately labeled Stevens-Johnson syndrome, idiopathic Stevens-Johnson syndrome. When we, when we think about all of these terms, I think you're really highlighting 
very clearly for the audience why we have reason to really interrogate um, the, t- the terminology that we use around uh, describing the spectrum of, well, and if we consider it a spectrum, a lot of people feel that erythema multiforme is actually distinct. It doesn't, doesn't evolve into Stephen-Johnson syndrome, whereas Stephen-Johnson and TEN would exist on a, on a spectrum. So Dr. Chu, since, um, since you see SJS as a, as a broad spectrum, how, how would you suggest that we counsel or that we educate um, or provide better education to general practitioners who are seeing these patients first on how to recognize the broad spectrum that we could potentially be encompassed by SJS with those patients who have very little skin involvement in mucositis, ones who have more involvement might be drug-related, infection-related. How do we, how do you reconcile, yes, the breadth of spectrum that um, would be involved with that disease? And I, I completely buy into this idea that people recognize the term SJS or how do, how do you create less uncertainty for providers when you have that patient? I do think you bring up a very valid point. Um, I think there is probably a spectrum of prognosis that occurs um, in these diseases and that there are kids who generally have much better prognosis and milder course than adults on the other end of the spectrum who have a more severe course. I think you can argue that, just like Dr. Mathis said, you can have a child who presents with what looks like limited disease, and then within a day or two be really sick and end up in an ICU setting um, because of extensive wound cares um, that are necessary, similar to what you would need for a severe SJSTEN patient who's in a burn unit. Um, And so I don't necessarily think that the clinical presentation early in the disease course is always a good indicator of what, you know, uh, near-term prognosis would be. I do agree that there's probably decreased mortality in children compared to adults. Um, And I'm not sure that you can make that distinction about mortality based on what the trigger is. So I'm not sure that the literature that's been published has been strong enough to say that it is infectious triggers that tend to have a better prognosis. But I think we could, we should probably think about whether or not it's because, you know, pediatric cases tend to be um, either milder or more resilient than some of the adult patients who have comorbidities. So just going back to our patient again, like we did an episode one with Dr. Bassett, what would be your preferred management for this for the first time presentation of a patient who has a diagnosis of SJS, what tests do you want to do to confirm your diagnosis? What, what information are you looking for, I guess, to confirm your diagnosis? Mm-hmm. And then how do you start, how do you start their treatment? What, what's your first, what's your go-to management and how would you follow those patients? I think my workup is very similar to Dr. Mathis. It would include taking a detailed history, including a very vigorous drug history to make sure that I'm not missing a drug culprit that has gone unnoticed. Um, I would do all the investigations that are necessary to identify whether there is an infectious trigger or not. And that includes a mycoplasma PCR. Um, That also includes a respiratory pathogen panel. So what um, at my institution, it's usually a panel that's determined with the input of microbiology and infectious disease based on what is circulating in the community at the time. Um, but I think that is a solid panel to obtain um, to investigate for respiratory viruses. Um, I will say that I oftentimes will order an HSV PCR from the oral mucosa 
um, just to make sure that I'm not missing HSV gingivus normatitis, uh, but that frequently is negative because I think even if there's an HSV trigger um, for this, you know, just like we've been taught historically with EM that HSV is long gone um, by the time that the mucositis develops. Um, and then in terms of treatment, I think it's a lot of the same things that Dr. Mathis um, described. Um, I usually end up admitting them. They get multidisciplinary care uh, with consultants coming in from ophthalmology, urology, gynecology, um, nutrition, um, and then especially including placement of something like an NG tube if oral intake is impacted. We do a lot of wound cares um, if there is uh, skin involvement. Um, I tend to treat um, patients um, early and aggressively with immunosuppression. Um, and so I, I tend to like a Tanercept. And then um, if there's not been response within about 24 hours, and by response, I'm usually uh, looking for um, cessation of progression, and I'm looking for decreased erythema around the uh, blisters. If there's not that uh, response that I'd like to see, I'm usually adding in cyclosporin at five megs per kg per day, starting at about 24 hours into the hospital admission. And then I will sometimes give a second dose of a Tanercept after three or four days if the cyclosporin alone doesn't seem to be halting the disease progression. And do you use prednisone at all anymore, Dr. Chu, or is that something that you would reserve for a certain subset of patients or just thinking about looking for common features. I, I can see that there are some things that we're sharing with episode one, but other areas where we're going to different different management or different ideas. Yeah. I think this is very difficult because the literature states that the corticosteroids are not that effective for SJS, um, but it's also controversial, right? Because there are also certain studies that do suggest that it is beneficial. I do believe that the timing of immunosuppression um, is important, whether it's steroids or cyclosporin or etanercept. So if I'm going to give immunosuppression, um, which I almost always do, I do it early and relatively aggressively. So I also will give prednisone um, at one to two megs per kg per day. You, I usually max out at about 60 milligrams um, a day, sometimes 80 if I've got a really large teenager. Um, but I also do that for about a five-day burst. I don't do any longer than five days because of the concerns about um, ongoing um, immunosuppression from the steroids and perhaps because of the past studies. Um, but I usually reserve prednisone for those rare patients who I think can be managed on an outpatient basis. I, I think very rarely you can have an older child who is still um, maintaining hydration adequately who um, has reliable follow-up and you can try discharging them on some high-dose prednisone and follow very closely to see if they um, can avoid uh, inpatient admission. Well, that's interesting. So even with the first episode and an older patient with a really good follow-up who's quite stable, relatively stable, maybe milder case, those would be patients where you would think about, um, about managing them as, a, as an outpatient with prednisone. Correct. I've only done it a couple of times in my career, but um, I usually end up sending them home from the ER um, and then perhaps seeing them in clinic with the next day, or at least, you know, having some type of communication with the family and some photos um, the next day to make sure that there's not been progression. Um, but I think there's some, there are a few of these rare mild cases that are 
that I think are probably more on the spectrum of erythema multiforme major. I'm not sure that Rhyme is a homogenous disease either. Um, I think it's rather heterogeneous. And um, that's why I would perhaps argue that it doesn't deserve its own name, not just yet. Um, just to, to go back to your, to your inpatient management of uh, SJS patients, I did have a couple of, I did have a question about, about any practical tips. I did want to ask you about practical tips. Give me an opportunity to, if you have any um, tips that you would want to share about, about inpatient management of patients with SJS. I was just, I was going to mention my own experience and see if you found the same thing. Um, but one thing that I found has been really beneficial more recently, and I think it was under-recognized in the literature previously, is the, uh, the psychological burden for these patients who either got an infection or took a medication and their skin started blistering off. And so I think there's quite good evidence now that there's a lasting, almost post-traumatic stress disorder-like, um, I guess, symptomatology that can develop. So I have started involving uh, psychology or the childlike services really early on. And I was curious to know if you did that. And then my other observation, and this is like a very, with a very relatively small number of patients is that when I have a patient that has very uh, richly pigmented skin, skin of color, and when I've treated with them with their tanner sept, I've found that they have less dispigmentation. And I was just curious if you've, had, if you've made the same observations or if that's been your experience too. So in answer to the first question, I think some pearls that I have for inpatient management, um, I really value uh, involving all specialties um, with expertise um, for each organ system that is involved. I think that nutrition is very important. And so I often advocate for a relatively early placement of an NG tube if it seems that recovery of PO intake is going to take a while. I have not explored or noticed as much the psychological burden of this disease in most of the younger patients that I take care of. So I would say that um, child life is wonderful to have. I think these children can be very traumatized by wound cares. They can be very traumatized by oral cares. And so having child life involved during a hospitalization um, has been very valuable. I don't disagree with you that they probably do have some post-traumatic stress disorder from this disease. I, I think it is something that I will have to keep a closer eye on, especially in the older elementary school age or adolescent patients. Um, I think that is something that we really have to be mindful of. In response to your second question, I'm not sure that I've noticed whether or not a tanner sept causes less post-inflammatory dispigmentation in patients with skin of color. It's not something that I've consciously thought about, but now that you've mentioned it, I do think that overall, um, patients with Stevens-Johnson syndrome seem to have less PIH than I would expect for the degree of skin necrosis and blistering that they have but I think that that may be independent of the treatment used. I'm not entirely sure. I will have to take attention to that. Dr. Chu, we're almost at the end of our time together. I just wanted to give you one last chance to, to really clinch the case for using the terminology SJS. What can you tell our audience about why everyone should adopt this terminology and why they should consider or, or strongly interrogate the, new, the need for a new terminology? I have always been more of a lumper than a splitter. So I think that when it comes to creating too many names for diagnoses, it can just continue to add to further confusion. 
and the medical community. And so I advocate for sticking with SJS um, as a common term. I do want to say uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to participate in this podcast, uh, Dr. Ramin. This has been an extremely fun experience. And I just want to make sure that all of the audience members who are listening today um, know that what was presented in this episode was more of a hypothetical devil's advocate position for me. Um, and that I really wanted to inject some levity and some controversy into this conversation. But um, the opinions expressed do not represent my own opinions. Thank you very so very much for playing along with us today. Your contribution is very valued. Thank you, Dr. Ramin. This is our third and final episode on this subject. And just a quick recap, in episode one, Dr. Aaron Mathis outlined the reasons why it's important to distinguish between RHYME and SJSTEN, followed by an episode two with Dr. Yvonne Chu taking on the role of devil's advocate as she argued that distinguishing the two can lead to more confusion when it comes to providers diagnosing these diseases. Now the group comes together to discuss the research gap and what's needed to reach a consensus on this topic. In the first two episodes, we explored some of the controversies and uh, I suppose conflicts between Rhyme and Stephen Johnson syndrome. And in this episode, what we'll do is look at what we need to know in order to find more agreement and more commonality between these two opposing views. And I, again, I would just like to recognize Dr. Von Chu taking the opposing position um, for the value add for this, uh, for, this, for the second episode. One of the aspects that I find most interesting is why some infections trigger rhyme in specific patients. Is there a specific genetic predisposition, like in the case of HLA typing for SJS and medications? Uh, that's a, a great question. And it's one that I share with my collaborators and co-investigators, um, you know, Dr. Mathis, Dr. Golay, Dr. Laura Corrales, and yourself in the study that we are doing. We are attempting to better understand the genetics behind rhyme. Um, and by doing so, we hope to elucidate the genetic underpinnings and then the pathways implicated in the pathogenesis of disease. And I think um, having that information um, could help us understand whether or not the molecular pathogenesis is the same or different from drug-induced epidermal necrolysis, our drug-induced um, TEN, and um, as well as perhaps help elucidate whether or not uh, it is distinct from erythema multiforming. So I think um, this is a great area for further research and um, much more collaborative work that needs to be done. Dr. Mathis, do you have anything anything to add? Any, any other comments? I do think um, there has been a little bit of work in this area um, from, I think, the Infectious Disease Group in Colorado. And although they were specifically looking at HLA type in recurrence, um, so in recurrent mycoplasma-induced rash and mucositis or MERM or RIME, um, and I think that they did find a couple HLA type signals. Um, so I think that there is probably something about the host um, that determines the reaction. I think it's also possible that there's something about the pathogen. Uh, we know that there are certain clusters of mycoplasma that uh, behave differently and cause different clinical features. So um, I don't think we know yet. And I think that there's a lot of work left to be done in this area. The group you mentioned, I think is, is Daniel Olson's group. 
in Colorado, and they've done they've done I think work on both both of those areas that you just cited with the different mycoplasma strains. I'm generalizing, but I think many people have noticed that that there tend to be outbreaks of of rhyme where you don't see it for a very long time, and then all of a sudden you see these patients coming in. They always look the same. They have those crusty lips. They're kind of breathing through their mouth because they're congested and drooling. And you think like, there's got to be something going on. And so that was one of the things I think they noticed in Colorado. And that was where they found that there was like specific genotype of mycoplasma pneumonia that was more likely to trigger rhyme during their outbreak. And then they found the HLA type, the B, HLA B27, I think in 51 were more common, but I have checked those in all the recurrent patients that I have seen, which again is like not a huge number of patients, but I've never found it. Have, have either of you found any interesting HLA types in your recurrent patients? I haven't checked. Um, and I, I think this would be an area that would be interesting to see if we had a larger population of patients, if we were able to detect some of these smaller signals, but I have not checked much. Neither have I. I would say though, um, Dr. Mathis brings up a great point with the fact that um, there has been data linked to HLA types and cases of recurrent rhyme, because I think it may be um, supportive of this idea that perhaps there is a similar pathogenesis in some ways, right, compared to drug-induced epidermal necrolysis, that you have to have a susceptible host who has specific HLA types, along with a specific trigger, which is usually, you know, a drug that has, a, you know, specific aromatic structure, and then the combination of the two triggers the clinical phenotype. I, I think that there may be some similarities that we, we will tease out as we go along. I do think that the best way to study these diseases is to have distinct nomenclature, at least for now, until we know whether or not um, these are distinct disorders or whether or not they are the same disorder. And it may be that as we do further research, we figure out that these are all the same disorder, then we decide to lump them back together again. But I think the difficulty in doing research in this field currently is that you can pick up any case report, read the clinical description, and one set of authors will call it RIME, another set of authors will call it SJS, and a third set of authors will call it EM major. And that then makes any synthesis of published data and any ability to um, cogently summarize the literature to be extremely, extremely challenging. Um, because there has not been good consensus in the dermatologic and medical community about what words to use to name and describe these disorders. So in a way, it's re you're really we're really hoping, I guess, to influence prospectively how the data is reported and how data is collected so that we can provide better, I guess, better data in, better data out at the end, better analysis out at the end. Um, just as you were just talking about the medications and HLA types, a, a thought occurred to me, which is, is there, when you mentioned talking, treating these patients with a tannercept, does it matter for you, Dr. Chu, what the trigger is? So for example, would you be more likely to use a tannercept in a patient who has a mycoplasma triggered rhyme? And do you think it works the same for mycoplasma triggered rhyme versus rhyme that might be triggered by another, for example, viral infection? Um, and is there, do you think there could potentially be differences between the two? I realize I'm asking you a question where there's probably not enough literature to back up a response, but I'm just curious about your thoughts. I cannot say that I have a high enough um, end of ex personal experience with using a tannercept amongst different triggers of rhyme. 
um, to know whether or not there might be differences in response. My suspicion is perhaps not, because I think if a Tanercept is working for SJS, it's triggered by drugs, that it may not be nuanced enough um, to respond different, different types of rhyme may not be nuanced enough to respond differentially to a Tanercept. I'd be really interested in what Dr. Mathis uh, thinks about that. I don't know the answer. I think that a Tanercept can work for pretty much any trigger. Um, I know that cyclosporin has been reported for multiple different triggers with the same cutaneous morphology, and I would imagine that a tanocept would be similar. Um, my preference is always to, if I have a documented infection, make sure that that infection is being addressed also. Can you clarify, Dr. Mathis, if your patient has a viral infection? So let's say something like rhinovirus, where there is no effective antiviral therapy. Do you still give immunosuppression? Or do you hold off until their infection has improved or cleared? I don't know that I have a know that I have an answer. I think I don't know. I would rely on probably my infectious disease and ICU colleagues at that moment and have a conversation with all of the different members on the team to decide what the best thing to do was. I had a very wise infectious disease doctor here who years ago said it should never be a contraindication to give immunosuppression during a viral illness. Um not never, I, I should say never, uh, but that, you know, for many of these reactions, um, it's the reaction that's more dangerous and not the infection. And so the very common scenario would be giving prednisone for somebody who has an asthma exacerbation from a URI, that the URI will kill the patient, but the asthma will. Um, and so I, I sometimes think of that when I am debating whether or not I want to pull the trigger on immunosuppression. If I think it's just a viral, not, I don't want to say just a viral trigger, but if I think it's viral and there's not a true bacterial cause somewhere. I guess in most cases, um, when you when you do identify, whether you identify virus or you don't, where you have an unknown trigger, there may not be a more specific treatment. And so mm -hmm. managing the reaction, like you're saying, is probably, probably the most critical part. Mm -hmm. And and just to, to highlight it, something that you had mentioned earlier about treatment, that the timing of the treatment, I think that is something that both of you talked about, making sure that the treatment is initiated really early. Um, do you have, I guess, do, can you give more, I guess, more specifics on how you, how you decide, like, let's, is there a time point when you would get a patient maybe transferred from another facility, from a non-tertiary care center or non um, like a peripheral center who might come to you? Is there a time when you wouldn't use immunosuppression because it's been going on for too long? I can say that kind of as a uh, follow-up to the last comment that we had, I oftentimes will be making a decision to use immunosuppression in the emergency room before we have any viral or infection studies back. Um, it feels uncomfortable, but it sometimes really is just your clinical intuition and the um, collection of clinical facts that you have at that time to make a decision, because I do think early intervention works better than later intervention. I think that when I am presented with a patient um, who is several days into their disease course, I think about whether or not I feel like their disease is still progressing. If they are still making new blisters, or if there are expansion in size of existing blisters, um, or if there is erythema, um, that I um, view that as active inflammation that I can intervene and halt with the use of immunosuppression. 
If they are several days into their disease course and they've stopped progressing and all they have left are areas of necrotic skin that continue to slough, I don't think immunosuppression makes a big difference at that stage. And at that point, you're um, left to do supportive cures only. Would love to hear what Dr. Mathis thinks, because I think a lot of this is guided by ex personal experience um, and gut instinct rather than, I would say, strong scientific evidence. I agree. I treat, um, I would treat early. If I'm worried about an active infection, I would try to treat that infection simultaneously if I can. Um, if I can't, then I would still treat. Um, and then I, the, all of the things that you mentioned are what I look for as well. So erythema around the cutaneous lesions, progression, extension of blistering or denudation. And then fever is the other thing I would add to that. So if a patient is still febrile, then I think you have uh, room to make a difference with immunosuppressive therapy. Yeah, thanks so much. That uh, I I would say I do very I amend patients very similarly. I think the one thing that I that I may possibly do a little bit differently is that I I treat everyone with antibiotics on spec um, when I if they if they have any hint of a sore throat or a cough, maybe not as strong symptoms of um of a pneumonia, but um, you've, you've both made me reconsider today whether I actually need to do that. And maybe I should be waiting for their initial PCR results to come back before I start. But I kind of think that a lot of those treatments are anti-inflammatory too. So it's kind of like a no harm done situation when we're trying to prevent progression. Oh, That's I agree with you. I forgot okay. to mention, I give everybody azithromycin until their mycoplasma PCR comes back. And then if mycoplasma PCR comes back negative, then we stop azithromycin. Um, okay, so I we're actually all on the same page then. Yeah, I don't use any other antibiotics <laughs> or broad spectrum. Um, I don't usually do acyclovir. I, I don't know how you guys approach it, but I usually feel that the clinical picture is distinct enough from HSV gingival uh, stomatitis that I don't usually give IV acyclovir. Yeah, I don't give acyclovir either, but I do sometimes give doxycycline. I had read in the States that you have more um, macrolide resistance and some like macrolide resistant um, mycoplasma and that it's actually quite prevalent in Asia. So for some patients, patients that are more than eight years old, sometimes I'll think about doxycycline, but I think there are, yeah, and the, possibly there's less drug interactions with cyclosporin, which the pharmacist will sometimes bring up as well. So the, the question from the audience is, is about recurrences. If there's a way to identify these patients early on based on their demographics or the type of infection that they have the first time, um, are there genetics, uh, similar to the question previously, are there genetics that we can look for? That it must be much harder than telling a patient to avoid a specific medication that will trigger their drug-induced epidermal necrolysis. This is potentially a condition that could be triggered by a wide range of infections. So how do you counsel these patients and um, what, is, what is your approach? Great question. And I think that that question highlights a lot of areas uh, where research is needed. I don't think that we have good predictors of who is going to get recurrence. Um, so I do not selectively counsel on it. I counsel everybody about the possibility. Um, and I think that what you mentioned previously about the psychological impact of this disease is magnified many fold when they have the recurrence. Um, and so I think it's important to be reassuring upfront that you are part of their medical team and that you are going to help manage it um, and that they're not alone out there if they do have a recurrence. I hope that someday we have HLA typing or some other immunological markers that we can 
look at to help try to determine risk. Um, I have a lot of parents ask me whether their child has to avoid all future infections um, and like, what are they going to do when they go to college or what are they going to do when they go to high school and people aren't masking anymore and they're going to get something. And does that mean that they're going to have a recurrence? And um, I, my experience has been that no, they don't have a recurrence with every infection that they get and nor can they avoid completely getting all respiratory viral infections. Um, you know, wash hands, stay home and when you're sick, things like that are pretty basic advice. Thanks so much. Maybe um, with the few remaining minutes that we have, what, what information do we need to be able to resolve the debate between SJS and RHYME? I think understanding the genetics and the molecular pathogenesis, for me, that would really clinch it. To know whether or not these share similar pathways, the same pathways, or whether the pathways are distinct, um, I think it's going to really help me decide whether or not these are the same disorder, just caused by different triggers, or whether these are totally two different disorders. And I think that's going to help me. Because, and I hopefully that information will then also lead to more targeted therapies. I would add to that that I think we need also improved diagnostic tools for infections. And I think that we're going to get that because I think there's already been an explosion in our ability to rapidly and accurately diagnose infections. And so I think that we will get better and better at knowing what's out there. I must say that I'm a little skeptical that we are ever going to solve this. I think it's going to end up being someday we may settle on a diagnostic algorithm that incorporates both clinical manifestations and triggers um, and puts them both in a line diagnosis. But I don't know that we are ever going to get to a place where the clinical manifestations are correlated one-to-one -one with the trigger um, because I, that's just not how the body works, I don't think. Um, but, and it's similar to how we have progressed with a genetic, with our genetic diseases, where we know that a different, a, one gene can cause a different um, phenotype in multiple different people. Thank you so much for sharing your solutions and your compromises um, over, over these three episodes. It really has been uh, I guess I, I has, it has been eye-opening for me to really dive into the discussion like this and uh, to, to deeply debate on these issues that I think sometimes now we take for granted, where we, where we assume that there's a certain level of agreement and where, um, but I think it can be, I think it can be in some ways, it can set us back the fact that we don't, we don't look at the other perspective. And I think, I hope that this will make our work and our research better going forward. And we welcome collaborators and other people interested in uh, reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption, Stephen Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, erythema multiforme, what am I forgetting? Join us, work with us on the, the research for the recurrent rhyme project that we are have established or to join the drugs and bugs study group where we can help to develop new research ideas to have better information and better data to um, drive our research forward. And I was also going to mention, like Dr. Ramin said, if you're interested in this, um, please join us in doing a collaborative research for PDRA. But we also have an active study where we are trying to clinically phenotype and genotype patients with Rhyme. So if you have any patients with Rhyme, whether it is recurrent or single episode, uh, please remember that we have an active PEDRA study that is recruiting and um, contact either of us or any of us for more information.
But thank you again both so much for your time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this round of Points of Discussion brought to you by PEDRA's Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group. This has been E.M. Rhyme S-J-S-T-E-N, the alphabet soup of blistering severe cutaneous adverse reactions. A very special thank you to Dr. Michelle Ramin for moderating, and a special thank you to Dr. Mathis and Dr. Chu for eloquently stating their cases. If you're interested in learning more about the projects within the Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group or would like to enroll patients in the latest rhyme study or if you're interested in being a studio audience member for one of our podcast recordings please email us at info at support for this podcast comes from orthodermatologics and insight pharmaceutical company this is an independent medical education program pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters authors moderators and faculty Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pedra Research so you don't miss any update. And be sure to rate and review our podcast to let us know how we're doing. Thanks so much for listening.